everybody, and welcome to another episode of First Four Outdoors. I am your co-host, Larry Schaefer, and I am joined here with my partner in crime, Avery Liller. Hello. God, you have such a bedazzling opening. I mean, it's so colorful. I love it and enjoy it every time. Yes. Thank All right, Larry. Thank so, you for that. so yes. now that we've uh, finished spending, so you came to my house today, so that I way did. we could record this podcast. And yes. you know, like a typical um, uh, biological male thing would yes. do. Standard guy stuff. Yeah. Um, we got distracted and did purposely did the opposite of what we were supposed yeah, to do. Yeah, we uh, we spent what probably last what what time is it now? So you got um, here at eleven. Yeah, it's one thirty. So the last two and a half hours, we uh, we made coffee. We made coffee. We made a fire. We made a fire a because down yeah, there. you got you got to have coffee and you got to have a fire. Um, we played with the dogs. We threw frisbee. That was important. Um, and then we got out the tree stand. Yeah, we got out the tree stand and set that up and uh, tried out the rock harness. You know, that was uh, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. I I enjoyed it. Um, definitely. It definitely gave me a new perspective compared to a safety harness like you talked about in the last episode with um, it being safer. I got to see the concept of it, and there's definitely things I liked about it. There's pros and cons to everything, but I can definitely see me adding it to my arsenal and utilizing it, um, especially on those quick sets. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot less weight. I mean, that thing weighs – I don't even think it weighs a pound. No, I think it – I think whenever I bought it, I think it said 14 ounces. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, my freaking tree harness is bulky and heavy and loud, and that thing was amazing. So, I'll definitely be getting one and uh, using it. So, good tip. Yeah. So, what was uh, the thing that you were talking about your dad? Oh, so for dad, he... His hips aren't the greatest. He has uh, hip injuries from from back in the day from a motorcycle accident. So I don't know if it would be feasible for him to utilize. Um, just with the way that it it works, I think he needs more of a a back focused harness, something with shoulder straps, something that focuses on the on the top portion. Um, again, the the safety portion is there it's great it's excellent it'll 100 percent. it's i find it safer than a full body safety harness like um i'm not gonna call out brands or names but it's definitely lightweight it's definitely feasible it's definitely safe and i will utilize it as a strapping young man however for somebody that may have pre-existing injuries it may not be the best route for comfortability, I would say. If you're using it like a saddle for yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're using it for a saddle long term, it's very, it's very hip focused. It, uh, it's all waistline. There's no uh, shoulder straps or back back support to it. So, for that purpose, I don't know if it would be feasible for for the long term sits and comfortability. Yeah, now I think, uh, so there, I had this idea for quite a few years now is turning mm-hmm. that rock climbing harness into like a, um, like a saddle hybrid type mm-hmm. thing where it has like a fold down seat, uh, to cup your butt and relieve that hip, that hip pinch. 
Right. Um, unfortunately, there's a company out there that actually has one of those. It's, oh, so uh, you're stealing someone's patent. No, it's it's the uh, TX5 Minimalist saddle. Mm-hmm. And it's just a regular saddle, but unlike uh, most traditional saddles where you have, like, the leg straps that are attached to the bottom portion of the the butt, like, mesh or whatever material that they use. Right. Um, that's not attached to anything. The only part of the saddle portion that's attached to it, um, is on the waist part. Mm -hmm. And then you can tuck up the bottom portion of the saddle and it's, it's a rock climbing harness. Like it has, uh, you know, straps that go underneath your legs and it has the belay loop and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So that's what I actually, because I am running like a hybrid system now, that's what I want to go to and, uh, get rid of the phantom probably to Zach. Mm -hmm. But, um, that way it just gives me that security of like having the safety of a rock climbing harness, but still have a saddle. So when it, you, go ahead. Oh, but, um, they're expensive for what, you know, what they are. All saddles, right. all saddles. It doesn't matter what you're running. You're, there's a price tag, unfortunately oh, yeah. to that. And, but if you wanted to have like the same type of system as that, you could easily, you know, uh, people used to do this in the past. Uh, Gosh, what's it called? There used to be, um, it was like $30 on Amazon. It was like a saddle, but it didn't have any kind of safety features to it. It just had like the the butt um, hmm. portion of it, and then it like tethered itself to the tree. But if you fell, it wasn't going to catch you. Right. Um, but a lot of people before saddles were mainstream, they were taking rock climbing harnesses and then using that... Um, like loosening up the the um, Prusik knot on the rock climbing harnesses and then mm-hmm. attaching that to the tree and using the saddle that way. But you could just cut those straps off, sew it to the rock climbing harness, and then add Lyman's loops, and then yeah. you'd be good to go for probably like 70 bucks. You know, I'm actually kind of upset now because I'm thinking back and how we've been doing all that cleaning and organizing at my parents' house. Um <clears throat> We came across a tote full of harnesses and tree straps from stands that I bought in the past. Just mm-hmm. like all my hang-ons and everything, they come with like, you know, a cheap factory-made uh, safety harness and tree strap. And we just kept all the tree straps and threw all the harnesses out. And now I'm like, hmm. Mm, that's a lot of material. Probably could uh, use that material to try and fabricate some of our stuff. But here I am. <laughs> So yeah, we have a sewing I mean, machine too. Yeah, because that's all uh, like scuba webbing and really heavy-duty <clears throat> nylon webbing, yeah. which has an incredible break strength. Yeah, you just wasted, but um, yeah, yeah, three hundred dollars worth of material. Yeah, Who cares? We 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 just burn money here. All right, so <laughs> so me and Zach Zach came up earlier today, and we talked about you know our entire. 2022 year yeah i timed it out just right that i was actually pulling in (laughs) as he was pulling out to make it inconvenient to where he had to back up it's been a very very busy day down my driveway today yeah it appears so i see a lot of tracks yeah (laughs) (laughs) but anyways larry so you know you you know there's three days left of the year but i doubt you're gonna happy new year everybody i doubt you're gonna kill you know a shooter buck because I doubt you're going to even take your bow out. Well, it's pretty brave of you to, to doubt me on something we already talked about and I told you I wasn't going to do, but still, <laughs> way to call me out. <laughs> so, we, uh, 
your your actual story you know starts way back in september like the whole month of september and yeah. we haven't talked about it yet we've Actually, put some, august into august yeah a little yeah. bit and we haven't we've thrown some clips out there we posted some pictures on instagram but we haven't talked about it yet yeah um but just to get it out of the way spring gobbler season oh so we're going back to we're going back to April. It's, it'll take a couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, Larry, you've always been a fall turkey hunter. Yeah. And I keep t- me and Zach keep telling you, like, dude, forget the fall. You ha- If you're going to hunt turkeys, like, you have to do it in the, spring. in the springtime, like, during their quote unquote rut. Yeah. And because uh, it's, it's a different, it's a different ball game. Yeah. And so I'd be, I'd taken you out you know, for the last couple of years, maybe like one or two days yeah. max. And, um, you got you introduced to it, but this year you got to do a decent amount of it by yourself Yeah, and scored a bird. I did. Yeah. So the last couple of years I've been trying to get into spring gobbler. Like I've been, I've been going out, but I would say, Oh, probably from, 2012 to 2020, I probably had like a total of eight sets. I wasn't really die hard into it. I'd go out, practice with the calls, try it, blow a set, and then that was about it. Uh, but this year, I had a lot more time afforded, um, able to do a lot more things freely, and got out a lot, actually got at it. I think I did like 25 total days this season where I at least went out and dedicated my morning to trying to get on a bird. Mm-hmm. Um, hunted all over northern Virginia and uh, the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. Put in a lot of good hunts, a lot of good sets. And um, I finally was able to get a spring gobbler this year. Nothing crazy, nothing big. Um a lot of people would actually consider him a Jake. He just had buttons. He didn't have spurs. Um, but he did have a five-inch beard. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, but I actually did real turkey hunter things and <clears throat> went out the night before and roosted a bird. Wow. Yeah. It's the first time I've actually been able to roost a bird. I've gone out and tried mm-hmm. and just never got them located. Um, it's weird where I hunt. They kind of they do the turkey thing, and they'll be there for the week before season and as soon as season starts they kind of disappear (laughs) but yeah i was actually able to roost a bird uh went out the next morning got out there early super foggy um set up about 100 yards from where i'd roosted them and i didn't want to start anything off wrong so i didn't make a sound i just waited heard them fly down from the roost went the opposite direction started moving in on them and um actually spooked a bird uh was coming over the the ridge just silent they weren't making any noise and it just started uh was clucking whatever you want to call it it was distressed Mm -hmm. and hanging around but wouldn't leave the area i thought about skirting them and i heard a shock gobble and that made me stop so i just set up waited and uh Threw out a couple couple purrs here and there, a couple locators, and they're still in the area. I could just hear all the clucking and the putting, and I heard another shock gobble, and that, like, really 
set me off because I'd already been there for like 15, 20 minutes. And so I belly crawled about 30 yards down the ridge. There was a little bowl with a log laying over it and uh, crawled up to there and got my barrel up over it, turned on the GoPro. I actually got this on film. It's not great footage, but you can make out most of it. And got the barrel up over, peaked, could see one bird, and then threw out a couple uh, putts. And here he come, all brussled up, strutted out from behind the tree, can make out the head, the beard, and I just let her eat and rolled him. It was pretty long shot. Like you've seen, it was probably yeah. 50, 60 yards. Um, but rolled him, got him, went up and stepped on him, put him down, and then just, you know, had my had my first spring gobbler. It was pretty exciting. It was, uh, it was definitely different. Didn't get the whole, you know, up-close, personal, crazy, you know, spitting and drumming in my face and everything like that with decoys, but uh, it was definitely a, a nice accomplishing feeling to finally get my first spring gobbler on the ground. Because like you said, I've I've been a big fall bird hunter. I've killed four fall gobblers and a couple hens. Um, I'm pretty rough on them during the fall, but this year, this, uh, this spring hit a little different. Mm-hmm. So that was enjoyable. It was pretty cool. Um, I... I'm not saying that I'm glad that we failed on our few hunts in the past, but it was <laughs> it was nice to for you to figure out how to kill your own bird on your own. Yeah, there's a lot and, of work leading up and to hunt it. that much by yourself, figuring it out rather than me just telling you, you know, like this is how or this is what you need or should do in this situation, or you know, having me call, yeah, you know, and you having <clears throat> to like figure it out all by yourself, and you know, you're. You know, you were texting me, you know, during your hunts, and yeah. you'd be like, uh, there's a bird, like, over on this ridge, and I'm here, what should I do, and stuff like that, and uh, it was just cool, you know, f- seeing you figure it out. Yeah, um, I definitely screwed up a couple, like you were saying, with that situation. I'd, uh, this was in northern Virginia, had a bird, I think it was like second or third morning, and I threw out a locator, and he gobbled, and I could tell he was like three, four hundred yards from me on the other ridge, and... I just I decided to go right at him, and looking back and what, knowing what I know now and realizing what we've talked about, is he was probably still roosted, mm-hmm. and I dove down into the bottom to the creek and ended up meeting up with him because um, I didn't keep calling and moving or setting up and locating. I just was like, oh, that bird's got to be there. I'm moving. Didn't take into consideration that the bird could be moving or making its way to me, coming in quiet. And ended up meeting halfway and completely blowing that whole morning. That was a nice gobbler, too. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'm hoping since you did dedicate so much time, you know, figuring out last spring that I'm hoping you have the bug now. Because uh, I know at the core, you're more of a obsessive deer hunter. I mean, me and Zach both love yeah. deer hunting, like, tremendously. But whenever it comes to turkeys, like, there's something about a turkey gobbler that makes mm-hmm. us go even more crazy. And so I don't, I don't know if you'll get like quite as, as, as obsessed with turkeys. Cause you are a deer hunter at your absolute core. <laughs> yeah. But the more you do it, I tell you what, there's nothing quite like a spring morning 
where the buds are just starting to come up out of the trees and you hear a few gobblers yeah. on a nice 40 to 60 degree day. Oh, man. I, I, I don't know if for me, <clears throat> maybe I'm just a psycho, but I feel like my interest in things are kind of selfishly based on my success rate. <laughs> maybe. Um, if I'm good at it, I like it. If I'm bad at it, I'm not that interested, which I don't know. I, I do enjoy the turkey hunting. Um, I really enjoy deer hunting a lot and I've been doing it for a lot longer too. And that might just be, be the thing for me, but I'll tell you one thing that definitely, um, over the years has piqued my interest. That's really got my teeth sunk in is mule deer. I'm kind of like it more than whitetail <laughs> hey dude that's whatever yeah it's... i mean me and zach uh you know because when we're gonna roll right into your story now mm-hmm. but me and zach talk about this all the time like if we ever whenever we go on our first elk hunt mm-hmm. because we like turkeys so much yeah like if i could just go on a two-week trip out elk hunting i probably won't i probably you'll see me not spend nearly as much time focusing on white tails just because yeah you're now you're almost same concept as turkey hunting but with a much bigger animal yeah and so larry yes let's talk about your first well this will be your first or your second mule deer hunt yes and then your first so well first elk hunt yeah in general yeah but it was also solo yes so I say we roll into the elk hunt, and then that'll lead into mm-hmm. the mule deer hunt. Um, so like you said, the elk hunting is a lot like turkey hunting in ways, or um, at least from my perspective, a lot of people's perspective, because it's a lot of calling and moving and setting and running and gunning. Um, so unfortunately, my elk hunting went a lot like my turkey hunting. A lot of calling and not getting responses. A lot of uh, trying to get setups and just blowing them. Um, I learned a lot. Um, A lot about myself, for sure. Uh, Also, as you pointed out, it was solo. So, I determined this year I was going on the elk hunt. Been wanting to go for a few years. Been trying to get it together. You know, you have the group text of all the guys going, and then life happens. You know, you had another baby. Zach started a new career. Uh, Tyler started a new career. Um, Jake started a new career. Everybody had big things going on in their life, and I'm just the uh, the oddity, that the single friend, you know, doing my thing. And I just was like, man... If you're going to go, you got to go. You, you you can't keep using other people's uh, circumstances as a crutch, I guess. So I freaking went out on my own, uh, prepped up a lot, got in really great shape. Again, spent a lot of time with the turkey hunting. Um, and I think that definitely helped me too. It made me a better caller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, like, as far as the fitness aspect yeah. is concerned, is I was training. We were at Fort Bragg. Fort Liberty. Yeah, uh, Fort Liberty. Uh, we were at Fort Bragg um, the end of May into April, mm-hmm. and I was training for a 40-miler. Yeah. And we took your car down there, and so, well, 
we I found this trail. Yeah. Uh, about ten minutes from our barracks, and you know I I had to log all these miles, and I'd be like Larry. Yeah. We're going out there. You know, if if you'd run five miles while I run ten or eleven, you know, like that's a win, and we're going yeah. out here every day. Yeah, I kind of so, caught the running bug. Yeah, so you that. know we're out there training ninety degree heat, mm-hmm. and you're running, you know, five, six. Mm-hmm. What was the farthest you ran down there? I did a seven the one day. So you were yeah. running five to seven miles, ninety degree heat, mm-hmm. you know, almost every day, and it's because you were forced sick. to, <laughs> and. uh <laughs> Then whenever we got back, I mean, you decided to go on a 10-mile yeah, uh, trail I, run. Yeah, I, I kept up with it. Um, I think it was the – I'd have to look back through my stats, but I believe it was the month of June or July. I actually logged 120 miles that month. Hell, yeah. Like, yeah. I was I was on it. I was, I was getting into a routine. I was lifting. I was running every other day or at least three days a week. Uh, making sure that I would, I'd go out on the trails and it, it was definitely different. Um, found a nice, uh, a river walk trail. It's like one mile long. So I'd do a lot of back and forth and I'd, I'd go down there and it's like the typical, you know, the, the morning walk walkers and joggers and they'd see me like 10 times and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, Oh, I'm doing 10 miles today. And they're like, Oh, okay. And like, you're not going slow. It's like, no, I'm trying to get like an eight minute mile pace, things like that. Like I was, I was killing it. I was doing good. And then I had a, what we went and we did your race Mm -hmm. and I ran the last four miles with you, Mm 4.2, whatever. And that was pretty cool experience. And then coming off of that, I'm a numbers guy. We've talked about this in the past thing we talked about on my episode, but I was like, man, that, I don't know. I know Avery's a fast runner. I've seen him run these mountains. I've seen his times, like, what happened? So I went out on an actual trail, hiking mm-hmm. trail, and it was brutal. And, like, it's it's funny because I've always kind of been, like, the, oh, I don't want to walk through the spider webs. I walk with a stick and, like, knock them all down, go on trail cameras, things like that, and it takes forever. And uh, kind of got out there into that, and I was like, you know what? F it. And I was covered in spider webs and sweat and it was sticky and leaves and running through brush and crap and stumbling over rocks and stepping on tree roots and running through mud and it was all gross and nasty and like, I don't know, after the first mile you just quit thinking about it. And I was like, okay, this makes sense. And then you're hitting like the, well, you you saw that, that trail, the I showed you the stats off of that, and you're gaining, like, 800 feet of elevation in, like, a half mile, and it's like, oh, yeah, you can't run an eight-minute mile on this. This crap sucks, because it's not, like, just a nice, gentle grade or easy trail. You're, like, you're rock climbing. <clears throat> you're you're going over some crap, and you're getting through some things. And I think that that run right there helped me realize a lot that I needed to train harder, because where I'm going, it's not going to be easy trails. It's not going to be your standard stuff. Like you're going to have to go through some crap. So I really started to kick it into high gear from there and, and train harder, lift heavier, go on those longer distances, more elevation. And, uh, it, it fed through it. It it made a big difference for me and I could tell. Hell yeah, dude. So, uh, (laughs) so, so preparation time, you know, we mm-hmm. covered the fitness aspect right there. 
how how long were you practicing calling? Because you had never even touched a turkey or a bleh, elk call before you decided to go yeah. on this trip. So I bought my elk calls back in, <clears throat> I want to say February. And I started practicing. Um, I was watching a lot of Born and Raised Outdoors. Shout out. Uh, I bought their call system. I bought the uh, Cat Red Shuffle kit. Um, I had... I got five, I think five uh, mouth reads and a bugle tube and then external diaphragm call. And I was watching their videos. They got a lot of good how-tos and setting up situations, things like that. Uh, A lot of great content out there. It's very informative. Uh, Of course, watching their hunts and just going along with the scenarios, calling, listening. Like They actually, when you're watching a hunt, and you're picking up on these cues, you don't notice it because you're focused on the hunt. You're waiting for the kill shot. But when you're learning how to call and you're listening to these cues, you notice there's so many different types of bugles. There's so many different types of cow calls. And they have different meanings and purposes and when to use them and when not to use them. And they go through those like, this is where we screwed up. This is what we did. This is how we were successful on this one. And it really taught a lot. And then, of course, the Elk 101 crew um in the elk collective they have a lot of good content as well teaching you about different scenarios setups uh the do's and don'ts of of it so really like february i started getting into it heavy with the elk calls and then it made me a better turkey caller as well um i learned a lot of multiple uses for those calls um, and they just kind of fed into one another. So I started prepping for the calling back in February and practice all year in the car, um, at the house, random, random times were just in between. Um, it was good and helped out a lot. Um, physically training all, all year. I mean, I really started training in February for that as well, physically and carried it through the year. And then the actual prep up for the hunt, like I did a lot of research on my downtime, um, figuring out units, draw odds, things like that. I ended up going over to the counter to Colorado. Um, so that didn't take a whole lot of time. It was more of just a reminding myself every once in a while I'd read regulations, make sure that I was informed and knew what I needed to, to do and know for those areas so I didn't slip up somewhere. And then the actual gear prep, that was kind of – throughout the years while watching a lot of, of videos, informatives, how-tos, the do's and don'ts, um, talking with you, figuring out, you know, I got the pack already. I got a good tent. I got, uh, I bought new boots, new optics, things like that. Um, I probably had more stuff than mm-hmm. I needed, but I was overly prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather have it and not need it than the, the latter. Um, so there's a lot of stuff, scenarios where, you know, I went out on certain hunts, I'd check the weather, knew what I was facing, and I'd leave certain gear in the truck, but I knew that if it was there, it was a day away. I could get to it and bring it back. You know, we should move those. <clears throat> um, but no, I mean, the, the gear, I would say the biggest, the biggest thing that saved me out there, big shout out to, uh, Brian Call and Ryan Lampers, Stealthy Hunter and, and Gritty himself, mm-hmm. was the trekking poles. Those things. I told you, I probably, <laughs> shamelessly, it, it saved my life probably two or three times where uh, 
If I wouldn't have had trekking poles, I probably would have been pretty banged up. I'd have been somebody you read about on the news. <laughs> um, I mean, they keep your stability. They keep you sturdy. And you can go a lot longer, too. Um, you know, you use them mm-hmm. in your races. Yeah. And it takes a lot off your legs. I mean, because now you're, you're essentially, you're working on all fours. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're balancing yourself. You're putting that focus. And you can go a lot longer. I was, I actually was really impressed with myself with the amount of distance I was going at the speed with the amount of gear that I had. I I blew my initial thoughts out of the water with, with the performances I was putting on. And that was the first time using those trekking bowls and I will never not go somewhere unknown without them again. That's for sure. Um, so gear wise, definitely if you're going out, get yourself some trekking poles. If you're going to be going over blowdowns, uh, high elevations, uh, transitions, things like that, even water crossings. It's a big difference because mm-hmm. it just, just the stability factor of it alone is Well, at is that important. point, like you have three points of contact compared yeah. to one. Yeah, you know, at all times. Yeah. yeah, it's huge. <clears throat> um, the pack around the XO, uh, K3-4800, could fit everything in there. There was never a time where it was like, oh, man, where am I going to put this stuff? I had room for everything I needed and extra. And that wasn't, that wasn't something you bought specifically for this hunt either. That's something. No, that, that's yeah. I've had that what, two years now. Yeah. I bought that after we got back from our last uh, adventure. <laughs> um, and it's it's been huge. I've packed out, well, I packed out a mule deer with it last year. And I packed out a whitetail with it in Ohio last year as well. Um, things that I couldn't imagine dragging a deer or even like packing out having to do all those those uh, trips back and forth for not having the proper gear. Like, it's amazing. I packed out the entire mule deer. I packed out the entire whitetail. And that whitetail was big. Mm-hmm. That thing was a 200 plus pound deer. And I got everything, all the meat off of it in one trip. And even the the tree stands, uh, mm-hmm. me and Dad packing in and out of there, you're able to carry a lot of stuff comfortably. So it's it's a huge, huge uh, importance, I would say, between the pack and the trekking poles made all the difference. Mm-hmm. And then like gear that you didn't have already, you were just able to borrow. Yeah, yeah. Your yeah. Uh, your first light, the puffies, the mm-hmm. Brooks. Uh, yeah, I gave you the Brooks down, and then I gave you a Cabela's puffy. Yeah. And then the Uncapadre pants. Yeah. And then that with the sleeping bag. And, yes. Uh, the sleeping, the sleeping bag. The lost dog. 15. 15. Yeah. yeah. The 15 degree lost dog. That thing was amazing with the, uh, with the instinct, um, Cabela's instinct sleeping pad that came in clutch. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And then the, um, Oh, what was it? The the ground tarp. The meat tarp, yeah. Yeah, the meat tarp. That thing was amazing. That was that a was That's that a, marsupial marsupial gear? gear. Mm-hmm. That thing was awesome. It came in handy for a lot of different situations. Um, during the rain, you know, just something quick to get under while I'm out. Um, it was blaze orange, so it was nice. Uh, while I was out there, the muzzleloader season came in, so it was nice to have some some blaze orange and not have to wear a vest necessarily because I was bow hunting, mm-hmm. but it was nice to throw on, on my pack and have that as a, you know, somebody doesn't just see something moving down through the brush. They see a big piece of orange floating around. That was convenient. Um, also came in handy with the, the rough, rough rains. Uh, it was nice to kind of have that additional layer between my rain fly and my mosquito netting of my tent. Um, 
you know, once it's raining for three days in a row <laughs> and it's coming down with 20, 30 mile an hour winds, you start to get little splatter effect. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to have that extra layer just to <clears throat> combat that, uh, kept a lot of my stuff dry for a lot longer. So that was, that was a definite, uh, killer piece of gear as well. Um, moral of the story is that just because you don't own all the gear, don't overwhelm yourself and find yeah. somebody that can, yeah, you know, that you, will is willing to lend you. Yeah. Stuff. You, you, I guarantee anyone out there, if you're a hunter, you've got hunting friends as well. You don't have to go and buy five, $6,000 worth of gear to go your first year unprepared. Talk to your buddies. I'm sure if you're hunting at home, they're probably not using all, all their gear in September. Um, even if you are a state where there's an early season, they're unless they're going with you, but in that sense, you know, share. Um, but, yeah, there's things you can go without. There's things you can go with, <clears throat> and there's things you can figure out on the fly. There's always alternatives to everything. Um, but don't use other people's schedules or lack of gear as an excuse uh, go out there and, and do the thing and you'll figure it out mm-hmm. for sure. And even if you don't have all the gear, you don't have to do a backpacking trip, you know, like what you yeah, did. Absolutely. Yeah. You can, you can 100%. There was areas that I went to that there was guys on four wheelers. You know, I did it all by foot. I went back country, but there's definitely, there's access trails out there with four wheelers. If that's your style, if that's what you want to do, um, you can have that option. Um, or even side-by-sides, e-bikes, if, if that's your route. I mean, there's tons of options. There's access points out there where you can even take the truck all the way back. If you're willing to, you know, pay the access point through a landowner and you prearrange that, that's an awesome option as well. I mean, right where I was my last two weeks I was out there, I was off an access road. There were guys that they paid the, the pay-to-play fee, you know, they – pre-arranged it with the landowner before the season started they paid whatever the amount was and they were able to drive their trucks out there to where i freaking packed six miles <laughs> to get to but you know they could drive back there any given day there's guys that had campers horseback there's several options and even if that's not your thing if you want to backpack it like i did there's nights i slept in the truck at the trailhead i mean yeah it wasn't convenient. I had to get up early. I had to walk in this, that, the other. But I can recall even a time where I went back for resupply. I'd been out there for like 10 days. I went back to get more food uh, and change out my boots and passed some guys that were on their way in, talked with them, went to the truck, spent like three hours of the truck, charged up all my batteries and everything because my uh, – my solar charger took a crap on me. That's something I highly recommend to a good solar charger. It makes a huge difference. You don't have to worry about your phone. You don't have to worry about your batteries, whatever you're, you're going through. Like it comes in handy. Um, unfortunately mine, I didn't test it before I left. So I didn't know, uh, something going forward. I will definitely do test all your gear prior. Even if it's the most minuscule thing, it make a huge difference. Um, so planning and preparation again, even if it's the, the week before, do it. Um, but I went back to the truck, did all that, and I was walking back in, and I jumped a freaking elk, like two, three hundred yards from my truck. <laughs> like they move, they do their thing. They're wild animals. You don't necessarily always have to go deep, and I've learned that 
through many things. My whitetail, when I first started hunting in Ohio, Mm -hmm. I mean, my first year up there, I got a shot at a decent buck within 300 yards of my vehicle from the parking area. You know, it's, it's about reading the sign and being creative with your techniques, you know, use all the tools in your bag. You don't have to, to be the, the hardest guy that goes the farthest with the most gear. Like if you're a smart hunter, you can figure it out. I could have hunted from the truck every single day and probably got it done. So don't let the, the hardness of, of the country fool you. Anybody can, can go out there and do it if you're willing to put in the time and the effort. Okay, Larry. So let's talk about, uh, being flexible with all this planning and preparation that you did. Cause you did a lot of e-scouting. Yes. Uh, building up to this and you picked out your state. I did. Probably it was more than six months out. You had, oh, yeah. you had already yeah. known your yeah. state and how you were going <clears> to <throat> do things, but looking on the maps, you picked out this particular spot. Yes. And then whenever you got there, it wasn't all that it had appeared. Yeah. So talk to me about that. Um, so the problem was it was more <clears throat> than it appeared. <laughs> um, it's a big country. If you've never been out there, it's huge. Um, it can be overwhelming. And, you know, it's, it's, an, it's nice when you put things into your head and you're like, oh, man, I can go 12 miles this way. I can go 15 miles that way. But when you really start to add it up and calculate it and you're actually there on the ground – it's like 30 miles because the ups and the downs and the overs and arounds and, and the water crossings that are bigger than they look. Um, the other thing that really bit me was my water sources. Um, I got up to the top of the mountain and, um, you know, I probably should have took more time and did more studying of my maps, even though I did a lot of time, but I was looking more at terrain features. If I saw water, I was like, okay, there's water. Um, there's seasonal creeks there's wallows things like that um and when i got there it wasn't water you know it was seasonal um sure there was water there you could definitely tell there had been water there i mean things were washed out from all the flooding they had this Mm -hmm. summer um but there wasn't actually physical water there and that really bit me i wasn't able to stay on the tops of the mountains i wasn't able to stay up high on the ridges i had to drop a lot of elevation to find water sources springs and such and yeah, it, it definitely it put me in the elk. That's where the elk were, but um, it wasn't ideal for movement. I guess would be the way to put it, and it hindered a lot of. Um, it kind of defeated the idea of I'm going to cover X amount of miles today. To I got to come back. I got to go over here, and I got to come back because that's not there. Um, it's really disheartening when you go five miles one way and realize that. The only place I know where there's water is five miles back where I came from. Um, so that can that can really put a hit to your morale. But also, um, the what you hear all the time, don't leave elk to find elk. Don't, you know, go where you think they're going to be. Go where they are. The elk were at the water. Um, so I spent time hunting around there, and guess what? That's where I saw elk. That's where I found elk. Um, but yeah, as far as the... As far as this, the the scouting and covering goes, you know, even um, one of the the harmful things, again, like we talked about previously, is the overthinking and the the um, whoa, what what did you call it? The um, paralysis by analysis. Yeah, paralysis <clears throat> by analysis. 
So I got out there early. I drove like a madman. Um, not speeding. I didn't speed. Um, madman mad meaning it, a lot it, of hours. Very long hours without sleep. I drove 17 hours straight uh, the one day and 20 the next to get out there. Worth it. Um, but I got two full days of scouting in beforehand. And I was sending you some. I found wallows. I found rubs. I found bedding. I mean, everything. But it was on a steep mountainside. Well, I found on the third day, I could get out around there avoiding going up it, but I could hunt it back down. So what did I do? I completely left it. And I didn't even hunt it. (laughs) I went to the top of the mountain the first day, and I dropped down the backside and found all new territory, sign, wallow, Rubs, everything again, but on the backside. Again, this is where coming into paralysis by analysis, I decided to spend five days on the backside of the mountain on where I had some water source. But I scouted all that stuff two days prior, and I could have been on the mountain face with my truck. I could have went back to my truck every single night. I could have went to the top of the mountain and hunted it back down, been in elk all day long, and returned back to my truck and had nice, relaxing nights. Not carrying camp with me. I could have shed the tent. I could have shed the, you know, 12 meals, 15 meals, because I would only had to carry lunch with me, maybe dinner as backup. Um, I could have shed a lot of gear, a lot of weight, extra clothes, extra pair of boots. I mean, I could have been light, mobile, and hunted that mountain face, and I probably could have got it done. Um, but I overanalyzed. I got in my head, and I got worried about my water sources because the waters was at the bottom of the mountain. Well, if I'd filled up my water in the morning, which I did every day, but if I'd have started the bottom of the mountain with my water sources full, hiked to the top, and hunted my way back down, could have been at the truck every night, refueled, uh, topped everything off, lightweight, probably wouldn't have sucked down as much water and probably would have had a much more enjoyable hunt. But I'm analyzing that now, not while I was out there. Because while I was out there, I was focused on going deeper, going further, finding more, doing this, doing that. But stepping back and looking at my situation, I definitely overanalyzed that. So if that can help one of you from making that mistake, when you go out and do these things, by all means, don't overlook it. Definitely use it to your advantage. Um, so yeah, that was my first mistake, my first unit. Um, going back, I did, I got on a bull my fourth or fifth day out there. Um, wasn't responsive to calls. He never made a sound. I happened upon him heading up a ridge from my camp. Ironically enough, it was within 300 yards of my camp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I definitely, I was talking with Dad about this a couple weeks ago because he asked questions. He's very he's very meticulous trying to learn things as well and understand and help me better myself. Um, so I realize now I wasn't aggressive enough with that first bull. Um, I saw him, recognized he was a legal bull. So what did I do? I stopped advancing on him. I dropped my pack, I got down, I got my calls out, I got my bow ready, and I waited, and I watched him walk out of my life. Like a smart hunter. (laughs) Um, Looking back, if I would have dropped the pack, 
through a mouth call in, grabbed my bugle, knocked an arrow, and moved on him. He was heading from, he was above me, but he was heading from left to right. Instead of going straight up five minutes after I lost sight of him, because I went to his tracks, I found exactly where he was, exactly where he went. If I would have stayed low, out of his sight, and cut right to head him off instead of trying to follow him, I put myself right on a trailhead where I would have had an open 40-yard broadside shot with three shooting lanes on this elk. If I would have done that initially, dropped my pack, knocked an arrow, took my bugle tube, and went up, because again, he wasn't responsive to calls. If I'd have learned that, I'd just left the calls. Um, but moved in on him on his trailway, I probably would have had a shot at that bull and got him on my third, no, fifth day out there, and that would have been end of story, but then I would have had a long, god-awful pack out. But that would have been a whole cooler story than uh, than this, <laughs> for sure. Um, so after all that unfolded, um, I believe it was, I'd have to look back through the messages and uh, realize everything, but I think it was like my eighth day out there. I called it quits on that zone. Um, so I was in... I was in southern, southwestern Colorado, very high elevation, lots of big timber, very thick. Elk aren't calling, elk aren't responding, couldn't glass things up, so I decided to move to somewhere more open. So, completely changed gears, moved to my, uh, I guess it would have been my number three unit of my choice, and... um Went up to more north central Colorado, uh, a lot more open, lower elevations everywhere. Um, still very mountainous though. Um, still talking like eight, nine thousand feet um, compared to thirteen thousand. Though that's a big difference. Um, a lot more arid, deserty. A lot more oak brush and uh, sagebrush. Uh, you can glass up, you know, one, two, three miles. A lot more open. Um, they still disappear. It's, it's crazy how an animal that large can disappear in an area that open. Um, but I spent the next two weeks there. And <clears throat> I saw probably ballpark 200 to 300 head of elk in that two-week time frame. Um, it was incredible. Um, my first morning there... I got within 50 yards of a 5x6 bull. Um, unfortunately, he was on private land. He was behind a ranch gate, and I did the right thing and watched him walk out of my life. Um, he did end up back on public land and crossed down, and I caught up with him later. Um, saw another bull and a cow, and they were about 200 yards from me. Tried moving in on them, and that oak brush is just so confusing, and you end up below them. Never did see them again. Um, ran into a lot of other cool hunters. Um, a lot Met a lot of really amazing people out there. Really great encounters. Um, a lot more time alone. <laughs> um, solo hunting. There was times where I'd go four days and I didn't see a single person. Um, you know, I didn't go crazy and draw faces on trees and talk to them and stuff. But I got very... Uh, uh, um, I was became a deep thinker, I guess would be a good way. I thought about a lot of things, a lot of things that 
I've done a lot of things I want to do and became very, uh, very focused on a lot of important things. Uh, learned a lot about, about myself and, uh, I recommend it for everybody. It's, it's nice to be, um, I guess dormant, if you will. And, uh, it, it teaches you a lot and it's, it's, it's very eye opening. Um, but back to the hunt, uh, I tried a new spot from where I was. I was on a peak and I was hunting one drainage every day cause I was in the elk. I had a nice five by five, I'd say probably two fifty to two eighty inch bull, you know, not a, Oh my God, 300 pluser, but for a first bull, that would be everything. Um, and he gave me the slip every day. Closest I ever got was about 90 yards. Um, he'd always come out above me, no matter how high I'd get, he was always above me. Seemed impossible. And then I dropped down to the other side the one morning, and this was in the muzzleloader season, and, um, heard two shots ring out. Wasn't quite to where I wanted to be just yet. And it sounded like I heard of horses, man. They were just coming down on me. I uh, got down, got an arrow knocked, and I had like eight or nine cows coming 40, 50 yards from me head on, and then they turned on a dime and went around me, flanked me. And there was a nice three-by-four bull, legal bull, beautiful bull, and uh, actually stopped. I got the full draw, and I'm settling that pin on. I know he's 50 yards. I can feel it in my heart. Wind is perfect. He only stopped long enough to look back, make sure the rest of the cows and calves were coming, and took off again. So as soon as I got that pin on his back, started coming down the crease to find that magic triangle, he was gone again. Never never a good shot, never an ethical shot. Um, and I just watched him go up over the ridge to the next, next uh, <clears throat> piece, and he was gone out of my life. So then I went down and got set up on the next point, and... About a half hour later, here come a bunch of spike bulls, cows, calves, pouring down on me. And um, come right down within 30 yards at this point. I went to full draw. Uh, they spooked, turned, and again, this time I was going for a cow. You know, at this point, I'd been out there. I think this was like the 13th. So I'd already been out there in the state for like 15 days. Mm-hmm. So week two... Um, <clears throat> I guess expectations had lowered, <laughs> um, which was fine with me. You know, I'd had a successful hunt to that point. Going full draw on an animal after that long is a success to me in, in any way. Um, kind of same deal. She never stopped, had a chance at like 60, and uh, she never quite stopped moving. I wasn't going to take that risk and just watched them go. And that's the closest I got. Um, had a couple other really cool experiences got real close on some turkeys i showed you a lot of that footage mm-hmm. uh roosted turkeys walked right underneath their tree cow calling never flew never spooked uh had a hen with some pullets come right behind me within like five yards that was an awesome experience uh saw some mountain lion sign saw some bear sign never physically saw any and then uh the elk that were out near the mining operation um it was all blm public land i skirted the the private ranch on a cliff face. Um, that was pretty dumb. Uh, didn't read my maps hard enough on that one. You can actually see the fence. Um, but I got to the fence and all that BLM was shut off for mining operations, active mining. Um, 
wasn't accessible and uh, started following the fence line because I pinpointed a spot where I could get about 200 to 300 yards from where I saw a herd of about 15 elk had two good bulls in it the night prior. And after about the third rattlesnake, I called it quits. I wasn't dealing with that. Wasn't packing out an animal in the dark through that. Um, just there was a lot of eerie uh, things about that scenario that told me that it wasn't a smart option. So I called it off that. Uh, went back to the truck for a resupply. And that's actually the night that I met uh, Andrew and Clay. And a uh, good group of guys. They're from Arkansas. And uh got to talking with them and uh clay he's actually active duty air force and we got to talking about some of the the stuff of what we're doing this at the other and uh he's actually going to be out there um so we ended up linking up they came out the next day and uh, actually set up camp and i think they stayed with me for two days and uh that was pretty cool that was nice uh kind of got that uh hunt camp vibe going on you know we're joking cutting up meeting two new guys uh sharing experiences and uh I guess they'd been out there pretty much as long as I had been hunting together, and they hadn't got on any elk yet. And, um, you know, their first day out there with me, I showed them, like, 80 elk glass and just like, yes, there's this herd over there on private. There's this herd way over there on public that we could get to by this way, but it's, like, two miles of hiking and thrashing and crap. And, uh, like, these ones are right here. They're, like, 800 yards from us, and we went in on them the next morning, and uh, Andrew actually got to see a spike bull um within like 200 yards or so of them so that was a cool experience for them they had to roll out uh, a couple days later but it was it was a it was an awesome experience to kind of have that elk camp vibe and share it with guys and cut up and and learn you know from each other about some things as as new guys first timers and uh it was definitely a very memorable experience so shortly after they left the uh storms rolled in and it just rained on me for like three days and it was pouring and I was getting uh, more time in the tent than I was in the field and it just wasn't letting up it temperatures dropped drastically um and it was raining like two or three inches a day I mean it was puddling up and then finally got a break in the storm got up on the ridge got phone service and uh pulled up my radar and when it was supposed to end, it actually tacked on another three days. And I was like, man, I've just had enough of this. I had like a three, four-hour break in the storm. I packed everything up, and I booked it for the truck. I was like, you know what? I've had a really awesome experience, really great hunt, and uh, I think I might be done. You know, I, I think I called and talked to you mm -hmm. for a little bit. Yeah, you did. I called and talked to my dad for a little bit, and uh, dad, he's always my voice of reason, you know. He's like, you know, just take a night, think about it, what you want to do. And I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. I stopped in uh, I stopped in Denver, Colorado. I was on my way home. I was dead set. I drove like six hours that night. I was going home. I'm driving through tons of great elk country. <laughs> and uh, got to Denver and stayed the night in a hotel. Got next morning. You know, I slept in, recouped. Had a nice hot breakfast, biscuits and gravy and eggs and bacon and just the whole stretch, man. I mean, 
nice waffle, you know, <laughs> it was everything you could imagine and want after three days of in the mountains, just going hard at it. And, uh, there was still that aching feeling of, I was leaving a lot on the table and, uh, you know, still driving past some great elk country, lots of areas I could have went to thinking about things, talking with guys, a lot of phone conversations and thinking about what I was going to do. And uh, looking back, you know, yeah, what happened was awesome. It was a good experience, but I kind of wish I'd have tried another unit. You know, there's just that lingering, what if, why not? Um, but what I ended up doing, I was just I was like, you know what? I saw a sign for Nebraska and pulled it up and realized I was like 100 miles from the Nebraska state line. Because I was high north Colorado. And, uh... I was like, screw it, got online, checked. There are still mule deer tags available for Nebraska um, over the counter and called the, uh, so a little recap last year, I was out there hunting public land with my little sister. And again, that's still an episode that I need to cut with her. I'm not going to talk anything about that hunt until it's with her because that was a big life-changing hunt for the both of us. And, uh, that deserves a lot of conversation from us on that. But one thing that happened, we were hunting public land, met a rancher, and he opened the opportunity for us to hunt his ranch. Um, no guiding, no feeding, just public land, like 2,000-acre ranch. Open, said there's lots of deer, come hunt. So we did. And built a good relationship with him out of that. Um, <clears throat> so I reached out to him, asked him, uh, what his thoughts were. And he said, there's lots of deer, more deer than last year and nobody's hunted it this year. So come on up. So I did, I completely pulled a, I guess a left turn, not a U-turn, but went up North to Nebraska and stopped, got my hunting license and, uh, got up there and I mean, pulling into the ranch it is one of those like I'm home feelings, you know, it's very, uh, very warming, very comforting. And I saw three 150 plus class mule deer bucks within the first hour of being there. And I was like, yep, it's going to be good. <laughs> now, uh, just take it back just for a second. Okay. Um, talking about the mental aspect of this, how many days were you out there? Um, before you finally called it a quits in Colorado? Um, I got out there. Um, I left the house August 28th. I called it quits in Colorado September 20th, 21st. Mm -hmm. So, again, I'd have to go back through the video. Um, I recorded a lot of stuff and talked talked through it um eventually you guys will get a youtube video out of all this stuff and you'll be able to piece it together um but <laughs> uh 20, 20 plus days to say the least 23 24 yeah. days and uh you know you were by yourself all of those except for two two, two. Yeah. so i mean uh just the the mental like marathon that you had to yeah had to endure and um you know that's one of surprisingly 
you know, we could go out and stay outside in the woods by ourselves all day long and it doesn't really bother us. But I mean, that's, that's one of the biggest, uh, downfalls that a lot of people have whenever it comes to making these types of trips. Like they have the money for the gear. They have, you know, all the, the planning and preparation, uh, like skills and then how to mm-hmm. read the land. But then whenever it comes to, you know, I was talking about this with Zach earlier about how we romanticize what an experience will be like. Mm-hmm. And then whenever you get out there and do it, it's not like what you thought it would be like. Yeah. And the darkness comes and you're by yourself and you're miles in the back country. And then mm-hmm. you start, like you said, you have all this time to think, yeah. you know, you, uh, you become super focused and in depth with what's going on around you, what you, have done in the past and what you want to accomplish and people start thinking about their kids or, mm-hmm. um, you know, their, their jobs or mistakes that they've made. And it just like beats them down. Yeah. And- no. So the big thing with those is make sure everything's okay at home before you go anywhere. Um, for me again, being the, the single guy, like I don't even have a dog to feed. Like I can go and, not worry about, you know, coming back. Like all my stuff's with my situation, my stuff's taken care of. It's watched. I don't have to worry about something happening or disappearing. It's covered. Um, but that having a reason to, to come back, something to fall back on an excuse, if you will. I didn't have that. I had to dig deep to even come up with an excuse and, you're going to hate me for it. I almost used you as my excuse. Um, Cause with all the stuff that was going on at the time mm-hmm. and what was happening, I was like, uh, and you know, it's, it's a dumb excuse. I had to like really dig to even fathom something of it because you, you're a grown ass man. You take care of yourself. You take care of business. But I was like, man, what if Avery needs me? What if like, you know, this happens. Like I want to be there for my friend. And like, that was one thing that I was like, maybe I should be at home. Maybe I should go home. But like, I never let it happen because I knew I was, I was catastrophizing. I was like, worst case scenario, these things like, oh my God, like you have a crazy amount of family within a half hour of your house that can take care of things for you. Mm -hmm. If it was that level, like Larry, you're not the solution to the world's problems. <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> well, dude, it's just like uh, in David Goggins' new book, Never mm-hmm. Finished, uh, he talks about this thing of um, like looking in the mirror before your day even starts mm-hmm. and figuring out like worst-case scenarios um, for things that could happen in day-to-day life and then figuring out like, you know, get rid of those excuses yeah. and handle those things before they even happen. And I think that's what a lot of people f- – like fail to do fail to do and look over absolutely they're just like i have the gear i have the planning i have this but they don't take care of the the mental battle oh yeah that they're gonna have to deal with so i just wanted to cover that real quick before we move into this mule deer hunt because then once you get to nebraska you're not backpacking you know three to four days at a time by yourself you're you know you're sitting in a hotel yeah i I had a lot more luxury in nebraska because it was it wasn't new. It was something that I have experience with. It's something that, you know, I could do it that style. Um, initially that was the, the plan the year prior and it didn't work out that way. Um, which it can be done, but there's through circumstances I didn't choose to. Um, 
But yeah, so mentally check all your boxes, check on yourself, check on others, and make sure that it's something you're capable of doing. Because again, like I said, yeah, I tried to use you as my excuse, but I talked myself down from it um, many a times for different different things, different reasons. You know, guys can find the simplest stuff. Like a lot of people don't like to hunt in the rain because oh, what if I get sick? Oh, it's inconvenient. The deer aren't going to be moving. I can't tell you how many freaking deer I've killed in the rain. It's one of the best days to go. I'm not a fair weather hunter. (laughs) But some people are, and that's their thing. That's cool. But when you really break it down, it has nothing to do with the rain. It has nothing to do with the weather. It has nothing to do... It comes down to, oh, well, I actually need to do this project at the house today. It it comes down to... uh, a thought process of something that they've been putting off that now it's, they realize how much work goes into it. Like you don't think about it when you, you go hunting. It's, it's that the romanticism of it, of, Oh my gosh, I get to go hunting. I might shoot my biggest deer in my life today. This, that, the other. But then when you stop and think about it, it's like, even when we think, Oh, we got two hours. We're going to slip out in the woods. That's so stupid. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And like thinking about it, it's like, yeah, I got two hours. I'm going to go out. Maybe I'll get a deer. Mm-hmm. What if you do get a deer? That's not a two-hour hunt. No. You have to field dress that deer. You have to get the deer back to the house. You have to process that meat. You have to package that meat. You have to store that meat. That is not a two-hour day. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot. And I mean, I catch myself doing it too, and you – you said, you know, this year fall hunting. Yeah. We'll, we'll, if we have time, we'll probably talk about that. But, like, you know, uh, so I, I I deal with this. Um, once I became, like, in a person who runs ultra marathons, mm-hmm. um, I would actually miss a lot of runs. Like, if I only had time to do, you know, two to three miles, I'd be like, well, that's not enough. It's not even worth it to get sweaty, get a shower, yeah. do this and that. So I would just skip it. And uh, it's then once I started running – uh, I actually started hunting. Well, once I started running long distances, mm-hmm. I actually started hunting less because of time. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, I have half a day. Uh, I should be hunting, but I have enough time to run 12 miles. You know, that's mm-hmm. way more productive than, you know, hunting or doing yeah. whatever. So you're always going to fall back onto the thing that has the least amount of resistance or what you tell yourself is gonna yeah be more profitable at that point in time absolutely yeah because like i I miss a lot of hunts now just because like if i only have half a day it's like well what if you actually do kill something yeah and then you know like you said you got the whole laundry list of things yeah that need to get done once that trigger is pulled there's a lot of work there's a lot of work now, don't let it psych you out from going and take advantage of those experiences, but really th- think it through. It's it's a responsibility that you have not only to yourself and others, but to that game that you're pursuing and harvesting. Like, have the knowledge and respect that once you take that animal's life, you have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders to ensure that every piece is taken and used properly and nothing goes to waste. So, 
you know, if you're going out and you're harvesting something for someone else, like those times where those years where you haven't had the chance to go hunting, you were working mm-hmm. your butt off. You had a new baby, you had a new house, you had a laundry list of things going on. Yeah. I went out and shot a deer for you real quick, but I knew that you were going to be home and you'd be able to take the time to, mm-hmm. to take care of that. That's totally different. Whereas if it's, I'm busy, I'm gonna go out and shoot a deer for myself. Well, now you got to take care of it all yourself. Like plan that out, make sure that something's going to happen with it. Cause it can only sit in a cooler for so many days. Mm-hmm. Like, be responsible. Not everybody has a a walk in cooler that they can dry age their meat for a week or two. <laughs> it's 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 not feasible for everyone. If it is, if that's your scenario, awesome. I'm proud of you, and I want to be your friend, and I want to hang my deer at your house. <laughs> but <laughs> if it's not, if you're the the average ninety nine point nine nine percent of guys, like, take that responsibility. You know, be be that ethical hunter. And so this is the things that we need to take into consideration before we, you know, spend all this money, make these trips and, Mm -hmm. you know, take care of everything, plan it out ahead of time, every aspect. And yeah. So let's get back to Nebraska because yes, because mule deer is something that I don't have a bug for. So I don't do a whole lot of, you haven't done it. Yeah. I haven't done a whole lot of, I mean, I watch mule deer hunts, but, like, I don't do a lot of research or how to hunt mule deer, so. Well, let me put it this way. You're, you like calling things in. Mm-hmm. You 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 like the act of calling things in. You're a ground guy. You definitely like being on the ground. You like calling things in and finding things. But mule deer are different. They're, I don't know, whitetail, you sit and wait mule deer you go and get turkey you you sit and call in elk you you well you don't sit and call in but you move and call in Mm -hmm. there's there's different aspects to it but for me i've got the mule deer bug bad (laughs) there's something so satisfying about seeing it finding it stalking it um and you can sit and wait for him too i did a lot of that and Mm -hmm. it wasn't successful (laughs) um but where were we going with that I completely deer hijacked hunt. that. <laughs> Where you, Larry killed mule deer this year. I did. And I, so I'm trying to. I, Larry killed a nice mule deer this year. <laughs> so, you know, how many days did it take you before you killed the mule deer? Because like you said, you saw a bunch of really nice bucks. Six? Eight? Six or eight? Mm-hmm. 68? Yeah, so what <laughs> happened? Uh, so what happened in those that time frame? Because like you said, as soon as you got there, you saw. Yeah, as soon shooters. as I got there, I was in deer. Um, I probably could have got a deer the first night, but I got impatient. Is typical Larry. Um, so the thing about out there is, there's always wind, and you will always know what your wind is, and there's no doubt of your wind because it blows hard. <laughs> um, so you can really play it to your advantage. Um. The big thing is I kind of was treating it like a whitetail hunt for a while. Um, I was was going out in the mornings. Actually, I take that back. I wasn't putting much effort into my mornings. Um, And I did this last year too. Um, But the afternoons is really where the money is. Um, So dependent on your style of hunting of the mule deer, mornings can be very key. Um, because the deer tend to stay out later. You can figure out where they're bedding, and you can use that for your stalks. Um, 
which I did, and I kind of knew the layout and how the deer act from last year. They were pretty, on a pretty similar pattern. Um, but my first night, I screwed up. Um, same deal. There's a big uh, field. Huge. Well, everything out there is field. <laughs> but there's a fence row. Uh, it has cottonwood and willows on it. One side had alfalfa, and the other side had winter wheat. Um, and a bunch of hay bales. It had been planted for hay. They had already baled it. Bales were out there, and they replanted winter wheat for the winter stock. And the deer were coming up feeding on that. And <clears throat> so, just like last year, I'd sit on one end. They'd come out on the other end, vice versa. So, what ended up happening the first night is I sat up on the front end trying to figure out just where they were going, figuring out what they were doing, because I hadn't been there for a whole year. Maybe things changed. And so I saw the deer, decided maybe I was going to try and stalk in on the deer, moved. There were deer coming in behind me, and there were two nice, nice shooter bucks within 100 yards of me working their way into me. But as soon as I stood up, I blew it. They saw me. They were gone. If I'd have stayed sitting still, they might have walked right up on me and I might have got shot that very night. And it'd be a whole different story. But that wouldn't be as fun. Because you got to work hard for it and you got to hurt <laughs> in order for it to be a good story. So, then I spent the next few days cat and mousing, going down drainages, glassing up bucks, stalking in on them, getting blown out, busted, uh, trying all kinds of different approaches, and just not coming together the closest i got one night was um again these are working cattle ranches so you got to account for human activity and i was moving in closer and closer on these deer they're getting patternable and i was getting distracted by other deer <clears throat> and every night i move another 100 200 yards down the fence room get closer and the one night it should have been money um i showed you the video there's some big bucks well, they were coming out the typical time they always do, about an hour and a half before dark. But they take their time. They're very mild-mannered. They're not in a hurry to do anything. They're coming up from the neighbor's property. Got a big, deep drainage that runs. It's super long, super wide. Um, and I guess there's a good herd that congregates through there. Well, they're coming up. I saw a nice buck. And the neighboring rancher went to check on his cattle. And rode through on the four-wheeler, spooked the whole herd back down <clears> in the bottom. He left, took forever. They finally came back out like 20, 30 minutes before dark. And they worked into me, and I had a nice probably 200-plus-inch mule deer within 50 yards of me, but there was no shooting light. I could not physically see him with my naked eye, but I could see him in my binoculars. I could see him in my rangefinder. But my naked eye, I could not see him. My pins were gone. Like, there was no way I could ethically shoot this deer. So I just waited till like, an hour after dark to where I couldn't see anything. I was hoping they couldn't see me, and I just I got out of there. Went back to the truck, licked my wounds, cried it off, went to sleep. <laughs> um, came back next morning and just continued the hunt. So every day was kind of the same story. I'd, I'd get in right at daylight. Um... Because I didn't want to go walking into the fields in the dark and blowing deer out. So I'd figure out where they were. I'd work the opposite side of the fence line um, using the 
the what was there of the hay bales, the cottonwoods, the willows to my advantage um, and get in on them. There's lots of mornings I'd get in close and it was always just does, which that section of Nebraska, you can't harvest does um, for herd management reasons. That's their program um, and it's working, which is awesome. But so lots of does and young bucks, um, which last year, you know, they were on the table. It was my first mule deer hunt, whatever I'm taking what I can get. But this year I wanted something more, um, had lots of opportunities at awesome young bucks, you know, two year olds, big, probably 120 inch, two year old, just four corns, just crazy how their antlers grow compared to a whitetail. It's amazing. Um, but that wasn't what I wanted. That wasn't the case. I was more driven for trophy this year. So <sighs> the last day that I hunted out there, um, we had a storm roll in that night. How are we looking? We're good. Okay. So we had a storm roll in that night. Uh, high winds, lots of rain, absolutely dumped, drenched everything. And um, it was kind of chilly. Again, been hunting hard for about a week or so took the morning off um had a nice warm breakfast relaxed had my coffee kind of packed packed up some things figured i'd be out there maybe two or three more days and that'd be it i was ready to go home and uh so i got to the ranch and the rancher was there he's pulling the hay bales off the back field where all the deer had been coming in every evening and it was only like noon 11 o'clock maybe and uh so okay well you know the deer don't come up till five o'clock anyway i'm gonna go and just set up another spot further down the fence road trying to get closer tonight and um did that and then i figure i go work some of the drainages because again the hay bales are in like probably 150 200 acres of this 2,000 acres so I go and work some drainages, figured maybe I'll try and get a coyote. Been seeing some coyotes. There's a good overlook spot with some willows on a dry creek bed. And um, put my elk call in, called one out, missed it at like 60 yards, shot right over its back. My arrow, the uh, vein actually slapped its back and it like took off. That was pretty neat. Lost my arrow because the grass out there is pretty deep. Um, it's like waist high, you know, two, three foot tall grass, very thick years of laid over so finding an arrow in a large area like that's very difficult so after that went out circled around to the other side of the property and this is probably about a quarter mile half mile from that field where uh the deer actually come out of sometimes and it's right down on the southwest corner of the property and it was perfect scenario wind was blowing about 15 20 mile an hour steady in my face and uh the drainage is kind of like a big y there's a ridge that comes down the middle and it forks out so i got down the bottom of it i spent a lot of time on the hill on the backside, glass and everything below me making sure there wasn't any activity in it and i dove down into the base of the y and my plan was is i was going to shoot up the left side of the y and bring it around and come up over the top of the center ridge and glass the right side. <clears throat> As I got to the base of that ridge and started to go up to the left, 
something in my gut told me I needed to go right up the middle. So I listened to my gut feeling. I'd been out in the hunting for like a month now. So I was pretty tuned into my instincts and figured you probably should because a lot of guys make that mistake early on in the season. They don't listen to their gut, and then they regret it later and kick themselves, and you hear it all the time. So I went up the center ridge. Have you ever smelled a rotten buck? Oh, yeah. They stink. Yeah. They yeah. stink. They are some musty mofos. So <laughs> I got a whiff of rotten buck. I could just smell it. I knew it instantly. I was like, I'm close. I need to knock an arrow. I knocked an arrow, come up over the ridge. There's fresh rubs. There's fresh beds. There's fresh scat. I'm in his bedroom. And I'm looking. And I'm glassing, taking my time. And I can see a rack down in the left finger where I would have been walking right up through the bottom and I'd have just, I'd probably screwed it up. Mm-hmm. So I dropped my pack, got aggressive, worked in on the steer, kept the hillside between me and him and uh, got this on footage too. You've seen the footage. It's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Um, not high quality. It's on a GoPro. Distances don't help, but you can make out the things that happen. So stalking in on this buck get to about 25 30 yards he's got his butt to me so i'm trying to work up the ridge to the right he's off to my left and uh he catches me moving so i'm thinking maybe i'll get a hard quarter and away shot like i did on my buck last year and uh i go to full draw he bounds off the nice thing for any of the use that know about mule deer um you'll know exactly what i'm talking about Mule deer are very curious. They're not like whitetails where you spook and they take off. They bound 20, 30, 40 yards, and they stop and they look back because they want to know what's happening. Curiosity killed the cat. (laughs) So this mule deer, he up and he bounds off 20, 30 yards, gets to the top of the uh, finger of the drainage, and he turns full broadside, gives me a beautiful shot, 60 yards. Me the excitable young man that I am, I have a 60-yard pin. So I pull, put it right on that bad boy, double long, and I let that arrow fly. And as you can see in the video, it looks great until it doesn't. There's a 15 to 20-mile-an-hour wind. 60 yards is a long way for a heavy arrow with a 125-grain tip. It sailed low left and missed the goalpost. <laughs> um shot right underneath of them um, in front of the hind quarters just below the belly, um, completely missed him, went into the dirt. Lost that arrow too. I'm going to talk about that later. Um, but to my surprise, and you can see it in the footage, and you can hear the, oh, shit. <laughs> There's another buck, bigger buck, in the finger. Uh, these drainages, they're not just straight canals or anything like that they got all kinds of finger branches think of a flooded lake a man-made lake there's all kinds of fingers this deer was 15 yards from me and i never knew it <clears throat> off to my right he bounds up i notice him before he notices me i get another air knock draw he's stopped at 30 yards broadside actually 32 i ranged it afterward but i've knew from guesstimating that's a big thing too quick pro tip Practice a lot of different scenarios at a lot of different ranges and um, identify yourself as a good guesstimator 
so you can estimate all these ranges because you don't always get the time to range it out on the fly. So I knew it was 30 yards, told myself it was 30 yards. Wind's blowing in my face, deer is in front of me. Perfect, no wind, no problem. Punched him, double lung, like no tomorrow. And uh, that deer took off up over the ridge. I knew he was done. So go over to the deer that I missed, and I spend a lot of time looking for that arrow. Now, for those of you that are listening, wondering what the heck, I did buy two tags. You can shoot two bucks, same day. And But I knew that I missed this deer. But I did the right thing. I spent two hours looking, verifying, no blood, no trail, no deer. Covered a lot of ground. Still never found my freaking arrow. Anyway. That two hours was a good time, even though I knew that I'd double lung punch this deer, giving him time. Go back, right to where he was, instantly, blood. Start trailing. Um, He didn't go 80 yards. He went right up over that top and expired. And, uh, beautiful buck. I mean, awesome. Biggest, everything you could ever want in a mule deer. He had, he had eye guards. Um, brow tines for those of you that don't know Westy slang, um, and big, big forks on his twos, awesome main beams, heavy mass carried all the way through. Um, I don't know. I don't want to over exaggerate. I didn't measure anything on him. I didn't measure his width. I didn't measure his length. I didn't measure his height. No measurements were done on this deer. Um, you can see all the pictures on the page. Um, Obviously, once I get him back in a year, because he's at the taxidermist, I'll get him mm-hmm. mounted. Uh, or he is at the taxidermist to be mounted, but I'll get measurements then after the drying stage. But I'm going to guess he's in the 160s to 180s. He's a very substantial, very respectable deer. Um, I'm happy with him because he's mine. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. Um, so going back to how cool this rancher is, mm-hmm. you know, Texted him, told him I had a buck down. Um, figured I'd probably be out there all night because at this point it's like an hour before sunset. I'm going to have to pack him out and uh, get him on ice. And I'm going to have to head home now. Like, I got to leave tonight to get him back. And uh, he texts me and says, Well, what are you planning to do for, for him for the night? You want to hang him up? And I was like, Oh, yeah, I guess I could hang him in the, in the barn. Um, Maybe, I don't know. He's like, well, go get the four-wheeler. It's at the house. I was like, dang, dude. Okay. So he let me use his four-wheeler. He's got an awesome dog that uh, came with me and rode with me on the four-wheeler out and back. Um, look, So I just popped the guts out of him, loaded up on the four-wheeler, took him back. And he goes, well, my neighbor has a walk-in cooler. He lives like five miles down the road. Call him. He's a taxidermist. Got a walk-in cooler. Awesome shop. Awesome guy, really. He he won me over. Um, took the deer there. Was just going to hang him for the night. He says, well, let's get the hide off. So we went ahead, skinned him out, asked me if I was going to mount him. Was like, yeah. So he did a quick cape. I mean, he's a taxidermist. He does this for a living. So he's quick with a knife. He just whoo, 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 did all of it right there on the spot and uh, left it hanging in the cooler for the night. Um, he has a key code, kind of like Airbnb. He's like, hey, you know, it's cool. It's 20 bucks a night to hang the deer. Um, so let me know when you're 
comment, here's the code, you can use it, you know, here's the sink, here's the cutting boards, knives, tables, everything. You know the deal. Like, cool. So, come back the next day, cutting up meat, taking my time, packaging everything properly, it's in a cooler, and, uh, he's like, are you gonna get it mounted? I was like, yeah. And, uh, so, without even asking if I was gonna let him do the work, he capes it out for me, everything looks great, takes some pictures for me, all the angles I wanted, I'm looking at his work in there, and he is high quality, I mean, he takes a lot of pride in his work, outstanding, and, um, so, you know, everything's already there, it's like, I want you to do it, so, he has a deer, he's gonna do the taxidermy work for me, uh, got everything on ice, frozen, he let me put it in his, uh, his uh, chest freezer as I was doing it. So the meat actually got frozen. So it was easier for transporting mm-hmm. the coolers. Um, preserved well. And uh, of course after that I just freaking bum rushed home and drove and like a madman again without speeding. And uh, got home and it was, just, it was an awesome, awesome freaking month. It was everything that you could want and everything you don't want <laughs> all in all in one um didn't get an elk but i got to go to full draw finally went on my big uh solo westy hunt by myself and um accomplished a lot of goals learned a lot and uh i'm just freaking ecstatic about it i'm glad that it it, it finally happened and i got a cool trophy to come back and talk about with it yeah dude it's been a pretty good year um things don't always work out like they have so far this year so that's been no. enjoyable to share with all you guys um you know whitetail season really didn't pan out how we thought it would for you but um no i didn't get to hunt ohio but there's still hope because <laughs> their season doesn't end until february yeah. 5th so yeah. i might still yeah slide so you up still there. you still have time mm-hmm. um but for this episode in particular, for the 2022 wrap-up, I really needed to get your Western hunt yeah. um, documented and, you know, put out there for everybody. Um, yeah. So there still might be more to come, Yeah, but it um, most likely will be in 2023. So. Yeah. so as far as my 2022 whitetail season goes, had some good bucks on camera, hunted a lot, hunted hard, put a lot of time in the stand this year, actually. Um, just didn't pan out. I didn't even, uh, shoot a doe, which there's still a couple of days I might shoot a doe, but I mean, as far as the big bucks go, saw a couple never in range or just caught me by surprise. Um, and then rifle the week of Thanksgiving, saw a decent buck, three year old busted up, um, seven point decided to let him go. Maybe he'll make it to next year. Saw a lot of young deer. Dad had a bang-out season. He got some nice two-and-a-half-year-olds. <laughs> but, you know, I'm happy for him. He's he's happy. He got what he wanted out of out of the season. I'm proud of that. And um, he got a 10-point. He got a 6-point. Killed the first buck on our 25 acres mm-hmm. I've had for five years. Finally killed a nice buck. That was a heck of a hunt. Um, shot, a, shot a doe out of her bed, and then the buck came trying to – get her up and he dropped him right on top of her that was pretty neat (laughs) um you don't get that often he got it on the gopro you can't make out much of it but uh it was pretty awesome pretty pretty uh 
badass. You know, at least the man supplied some content this year. <laughs> uh, I can't say the same for me, but um, no, I mean, there's there's still time. Something something might happen in Ohio here in the next month or so. But my uh, my whitetail season wasn't much to be desired. So hopefully, the rest of you had a better season. I know you did for certain. That was pretty cool. Um, glad you finally broke the curse on that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, but outside of that, that's pretty much been my season. Oh, I did get an arrow and a bear, but again, my bear curse continues. And I didn't get him. Um, it's late, bad shot, shoulder with a bow, um, about three, four inches of penetration, and uh, just didn't pan out. But all in all, I've had a awesome year and i couldn't ask for anything better now to wrap this whole thing up uh what are just a quick rundown what Mm -hmm. are your plans for 2023 Ooh, um more turkey hunting uh definitely gonna i'm gonna try and make nebraska just an annual tradition thing want to go again try to get dad out there with me this year um because he's going back to the vertical bow he's actually already gone back to the vertical bow um He's a lot more confident with that than he is this crossbow for good reason. Um, I have preference points in Iowa and I have preference points in Kansas. I'm going to try and get on one of those this year, maybe. Um, and I definitely want to go back out to Colorado again and give it another spin up. Hopefully with Zach. Um, so a lot on the table for, for this year, um, I have a lot of leaves stored up, hopefully, and uh, just a lot more turkey hunting, a lot more um, whitetail focused, and then the elk hunt and the mule deer hunt. So hopefully have five or six pretty cool hunts this year to uh, line up, get a lot more more footage with them, learn a lot more about filming and how to make it a better experience. And uh, I'll be spending a lot more time with Tyler this year, uh, working down closer to him. So hopefully we'll actually get the, the YouTube going this mm-hmm. year and actually put out some pretty cool videos for you guys and, uh, make it a lot more immersed experience and, uh, just all around. Hope you guys are enjoying it and look forward to hearing your feedback and seeing what we can provide for you. Hell yeah, dude. Way to sum it all up, guys. If you like this episode, make sure you share, subscribe to the channel, like it. Um, if you want, leave a comment. That's how, you know, this page gets seen more by people. Um, and we just love your guys' feedback. Uh, we truly do. Um, we're, you know, we had a, a rough couple months here yeah. lately. but yeah. um, we've been busy. We're, we're getting things dialed in, so... Yeah. We have a lot of uh, really good ideas, especially going into this offseason. We have a lot of things that we want to talk about uh, leading up to turkey season. So, guys, hang with us. We have nothing else.